Welcome to 2024. With the 2024 election on the horizon, the wars in Gaza and Ukraine, and numerous other foreign policy and domestic news stories, it's never been more important to stay informed. The DSR Network has you covered, with experts across all of these stories, to bring you the analysis and commentary of the stories that matter. Later this month, the DSR Network will introduce the TNR Daily, featuring Greg Sargent, formerly of the Washington Post, and a close friend of the show. Don't miss a moment of our coverage. Become a member of the DSR Network today. Members receive exclusive bonus content, the opportunity to attend DSR live events, a members-only Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and more. For the month of January, receive 50% off your first year of membership. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DSR2024 at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code DSR2024. Thank you for your support. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, and we are going to talk about one of the subjects that we're going to talk a lot about this year, and that is the upcoming elections. And we have three of the very best people to talk to about this. You know that because we've been talking to them for a long time. Uh, one is Tara McGowan. She's the founder and CEO of Good Information, Inc. and publisher for Ever Expanding Career Newsroom. How are you doing, Tara? Doing well, David. Happy to see you guys. Excellent. Glad to see you. We also have Tom Bonnier, who's a veteran Democratic political strategist and the CEO of the Tara Group. How are you doing, Tom? I'm pretty good. Good to be Excellent. Here. And then, of course, we have uh, the purveyor of hopium and our number one guru, Simon Rosenberg, who is a political strategist and a commentator and can be found on his substack, Hopium Chronicles. Hi, Simon. How are David, you doing? It's great to be here. What a crew you've assembled today. I'm looking forward to it. This is a crew you assembled. You introduced <laughs> me to all these people. I, I just... As in all things pertaining to this, I just follow your advice. Let me kick it off with you, Simon, because I did. I was watching social media today. And of course, we do want to talk about the year ahead, but the year ahead consists of a variety of components, including just sort of tracking what's happening in the economy and in other things that affect the election. And there was more good news on that front today. Um, and, uh, just, why don't you, why don't you did another one of your great, <laughs> Hey, the economy's working yeah. great folks. Listen, uh, yeah. threads, uh, I mean, listen, the news, the economic news in recent months, or just the general news has been incredible, right? I mean, inflation prices are falling. GDP growth was 5% last quarter. Um, you know, we've seen, um, you know, wage growth has continued to be really strong. We have the strongest economic recovery of any economy in the G7. Rents are falling, mortgage rates are falling, uh, gas prices are falling, you know, all the things that we want. I mean, the, the Joe Biden has steered us through this challenge of COVID and OPEC 
you know, oil price hikes and the Russian war in Ukraine, and we've gotten to the other side. And we're very, the country is strong, ending the year on a real up note, or beginning the year on a real up note. And I'll note one other thing I left out, which is that crime rates have also come. We now know that crime and murder rates are way down here. We also had record oil and renewable production this year. So in so many ways, things are going right. And I think it's why Joe Biden, at the end of the day, has a strong case for re-election. He's been a good president. Uh, and I feel very optimistic about 2024. Well, Tara, you've got this uh, nationwide organization that's covering communities uh, from coast to coast. Uh, are they feeling it? Are, are they feeling as optimistic as Simon? Yeah. Um, about the state of That's our goal. The purpose of these <laughs> um, podcasts is to get everybody to feel like Simon. Uh, um, uh, no, I don't think that most Americans are feeling that way. I don't think um, that that is only because they're feeling pessimistic. Um, I think that they're, it, it's a mixed bag of folks that are not as tuned in. Um, it's, uh, it's hard to break through the noise, um, the economy and job numbers and even inflation numbers, if it doesn't hit people's wallets immediately are not things that people feel, um, or pay that much attention to. Um, it's certainly not what drives most of the information or the content that's happening online, uh, cause it's not so controversial and it's certainly not where the right or the right wing media, um, or, uh, foreign adversaries that are getting a lot more active right now want the conversation to be that's reaching most people online. So, um, I don't think that the economy is the thing that's actually penetrating, even though that would be very favorable to Biden and Democrats right now. I think it's a lot of other issues. Um, what's happening abroad, obviously, in Israel and Palestine. Um, I think uh, what just generally what's happening in terms of how young people are feeling about things and about uh, politics generally right now is really worrisome. Um, so I think that there's a, there's a lot of work that has to be done. We've got to figure out how to get hopium into the bloodstream um, of the internet and to all people and not just the folks that sit around like us wringing our hands and, and reading too much and knowing too much. Um, we are not representative. So uh, that's the job that we all have before us now. Um, now that we're here, 2024 is now here. Yeah, amazingly, it's here. It came very quickly. And if it came very quickly, then you know that November is going to come very quickly. Tom, um, if the the message on the economy is good, but not sinking in, um, you know, maybe we should just give up on trying to communicate it. I mean, I read in the New Yorker and the New Yorker is a, you know, like very august publication that Bidenomics was a dumb idea. Promoting it was a dumb idea. It's not really resonating with the American people. Um, uh, not that we have to reach all of them because there are 30% of the American people, according to the economist who believe that Donald Trump was anointed by God to be president and we're not going to get them, but you know, the rest of them should, should we just stop trying to persuade them that they're having a good time because they're not going to believe it and start focusing on something else? If only we could, um, no, we, we shouldn't give up. We have a great story to tell. I think there's this dynamic that we're experiencing that is a little bit unusual. And that when you look at the polling on how people feel about the economy, there are questions that used to be sort of apolitical. People would just give their honest answer about how they felt about things. And, and now our sacred polling has become spoiled by polarization. And so when you ask people, are we in a recession? or a depression, or, you know, they give people a handful of different options. Democrats overwhelmingly say, no, we're not. Things are good. And they're actually in step with what's happening in the economy. Republicans overwhelmingly say, 
that were in a recession, if not a depression. And then independence, and this is where, and I think to Tara's point, in terms of people who aren't paying that much attention, and to your question, where the work lies, is with these people who are not as engaged at this point, which is normal, by the way, um, they're going to start tuning in. It's going to become unavoidable. The problem is, because Republicans are just so much more adept at this in so many ways, and they control the media much more effectively, and they have so many more outlets, is that for those people, those uh, lower engagement, mostly independents, but also you know Democratic, younger Democrats, um, what does bleed through to them is going to be more negative. And so I think you're seeing that in the polling too. The good news is, to Simon's point, is we have a great story to tell. We have a great record to run on. So yeah, we do have to tell that story. Um, and we will. People will pay attention, and I expect to see those numbers improve. But it won't happen by it. Okay. I, well, can I add a yes sl- and David to that? Though? Yeah, yeah, sure. Because um, I, I, I do actually. Were think you in a comedy that- troupe at some point? Because <laughs> that's sort yeah, of the yeah. basic of improv comedy, right? Is no, yes just the and- progressive movement. Also, <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> Which is an improv comedy <laughs> troupe of its own. Um, of its own color. Yes, of course. Um, I, I actually think that there is a case to be made to. Um, not focus so much on what has been done. Um, I think that it's important that it's out there and it's not, there's no vacuum on it because so much good work has been done. But actually, I think it's easier in certain ways to engage voters about the contrast about what the candidates plan to do. We have this incredibly terrifying report, Project 2025, out that more people need to know about, which is Trump's plan if he's elected to a second term. And we know that he is the likely nominee at this stage, barring uh, some incident occurring. But he he holds the nominee and the Republican Party right now. And, and he has put out there what he plans to do. And it's abhorrent right? It's not only the things that he's done. And so I think we do run the risk of focusing too much on what Trump did in his last administration. I think we should bring that back up and remind people, of course, but they know it. Um, Reminding them is good. But actually what he plans to do is so much more egregious um, and so much less democratic um, and and frankly more authoritarian and just really terrifying um, in terms of marginalizing different populations from women to people of color to immigrants, what have you. Um, And also we need a very strong contrast about what Democrats are going to do. And that also provides an opportunity to be able to say, look, we've done a lot, but there is still so much to do. So that meets people where they are when they don't feel the benefits yet of the economic development or the gains, or it isn't about the jobs for them. And that's the pivot I think that the Biden campaign needs to make. That's the pivot Democrats need to make is we need to start talking about what are we going to do? And and Democrats have the benefit of being able to say, look what we've done, and now we're going to build from it and look what they plan to do. And that contrast, I think, is going to be the most salient thing for people that meets them where they are. So it isn't trying to sell them something that they don't believe or feel internally. So there is this dichotomy here, Simon. You know, should we be selling hopium or should we be selling ferium <laughs> or fear and hadium? Um, uh, you know, because, you know, they've, they've got Trump running and we know, you know, he's, he's, he's a kind of despicable character and a lot of people think that. Uh, and they also have these kind of dark plans. And it's not just, you know, 2025 that, you know, they said on the record, many of them, they want to cut back on Social Security, they want to cut back on Medicare, they want to cut back on big public programs. Um, And and it's clearly not an either or. Because I was talking to somebody in the White House the other day, and they said, the thing that polls best for us in battleground states is 
our ability to cut drug prices. So, you know, that, so that there are some things that are, you know, that are, that are positive. How does the average person deal with this dichotomy? Do, does the average person who's got their small platform and their friends and their family and social media and stuff talk about both messages all yeah. the time? I mean, I th- look, I think I agree with Tara and Tom, which is that we, you know, we just have to be honest with the American people, which is that, we, you know, Joe Biden has been a good president. He's going to have, he's going to be rolling out a strong agenda for the second term over the next couple of months. And we, I'm sure that's going to start with the State of the Union soon. And then, you know, they, Donald Trump is this degraded, disgraced figure who wants to end American democracy. You know, he tried to end American democracy in 2021. And now his campaign slogan is, you know, I'm, if you elect me, I'm going to finish the job. I mean, I think that as political professionals, I think all three of us can say that we have more negatives and more things to disqualify him and to push him out of the mainstream of American politics than we've had with any candidate in modern American history. And so part of the reason I'm optimistic, right, not, not you know, Pollyannish about our chances is that Joe Biden's been a good president. We've been winning elections all over the country since Dobbs of all kinds in 2022 and 2023, that when people have actually had to vote, forgetting about the polls, right, we've done unbelievably well. And they have the worst person to ever be a major party nominee in the history of the country. And we should be able to take all of that and win. And I hope not just win, but win by a substantial margin, which will allow us to make this election about to be able to say that this was a repudiation of MAGA and to start to really weaken MAGA's dark grip on the Republican Party, which I think is all of our collective objective is to have this politics be flushed away so that we don't every two years worry about whether if we stumble or our democracy is going to slip away. So I look at all of this and I agree with Tara and Tom that we have enormous opportunity here to tell our story and to tell theirs. And I'm pretty confident that if people can hear it, and that's what a campaign's about, right? which is why we need the campaign to get going, is um, you know that we are going to come out on the right side of this in the fall. Tom, today... The day we're recording this, January 5th, President of the United States is giving a speech on the threat to democracy, commemorating the third anniversary of the January 6th insurrection. Is that the right thing for him to do? Should he be doing it every week? Should his surrogates be out there? Who would be effective surrogates? How do, how do, how do we get that part of the message to which both Simon and Tara referred out there? Yeah, it's unquestionably the right thing to do. Uh, I, I, I think that the most important element of this is that people understand and internalize the stakes of this election. And to Tara's point, when you actually zoom in on it, and it's not like you have to zoom in very far because they put it all out there. Tara mentioned the Project 2025. Um, it's terrifying. And when you think about what Simon was talking about, and Simon coined this term, and I think it's the, the perfect way to think about this, the two elections. The 2022 elections that we've talked a, a lot about on here, but I think it it bears some further analysis in terms of this question of should the president be uh, putting this question of democracy versus extremism in, in the, the forefront. In 2022, there were the states where Democrats overperformed expectations, overperformed past precedent, places like uh, Michigan and Pennsylvania and Arizona and Nevada, that despite what 
you know, quote, the fundamentals would have predicted in this election, Democrats actually performed quite well. And the difference between those states and those races and the places where Democrats, frankly, performed like you would have expected in a midterm election with a Democrat in the White House, places like New York and California, the difference wasn't about our messaging on the economy in those states, to go back to what Tara was saying. It was about to the extent to which voters in those states saw a clear and present threat associated those races. You think about the candidates, when you think about abortion rights being on the ballot in Michigan, that was the difference. And in a lot of states, we weren't able to effectively communicate the threat that Republicans posed. So Democrats stayed home, independents uh, went over to Republican candidates, and that's how Republicans were able to take the House back, obviously by, by a very narrow margin. So for the president to put that in the forefront at the beginning of this election year on this anniversary, I think is is the smart move. It's the right move. And yes, I think it should continue to be in the forefront uh, going forward, not as the exclusive issue, but it, it is important as people begin to tune into this election that they understand the stakes. Okay. So Tara, just picking up on that, the... Um uh, first Republican primaries not too far away. We had a debate. I'm, nobody can see my air quotes. I hope you can hear my air quotes. Uh, last night between the two remaining candidates, um, Ron DeSantis and, and Nikki Haley, um, which was underwhelming and only could any confirm any viewers' uh, suspicion that Donald Trump's going to be the candidate again. But we seem to be in it. And one of the criticisms that I hear, and it was implicit in something that, that you said, is that the Democratic Party, the White House Democratic candidates, aren't dialed up to 10 yet, and they should be. You know, that, that we ought to be more intense now. Is that overreaction? Do we really not have to be intense until, you know, September or, you know, what's your sense of that issue? Are you sure you didn't mean this question for Simon? <laughs> uh, well, I, I meant it for you the, to the offer tweet. something vaguely critical and then for Simon to say everything's going to be okay. Right. The tweet heard around the world um, was Simon's that the, the campaign needs to turn fully on um, a few weeks ago. And um, uh, I agreed with that assessment then. I agree with it now. Um, I think that they have gotten a really late start. There have been some promising signs um, over the past few days and weeks that um, they are uh, turning it up a notch, but they've lost time. They have lost a lot of time. And um, just like 2020 and just like 2018, the, the media ecosystem, the technological landscape and ecosystem are fundamentally different than the last presidential election cycle again. And so you can't actually start late and then rely on um, the same tools, tactics, platforms, uh, strategies any longer to engage audiences. And so if you have to adapt and test and learn, you need to get a really early start. So it is a little bit concerning to me. Um, organizing today looks different, right? You can do so much more organizing online. People are self-organizing. Um, Simon can speak to this better than I can because he talks to all of these 
groups across this, the country, but people are desperately hungry to be told what to do and how to engage who are engaged right now, the folks that are wringing their hands and consuming information and want to know what they can do to be helpful in this effort. And that is the campaign's primary responsibility is to give them actions that they can take to be able to spread the word, their messaging, give resources to them and other candidates, um, get their friends and neighbors involved, do relational organizing. These are things that take time. It's infrastructure that has to be built and deployed. Um, and it's new. It's new infrastructure and new ways of doing this that are constantly evolving and changing. So it does concern me quite a bit that they're getting this late of a start. It makes me, um, it gives me some PTSD from 2016, uh, a wholly different um, world and environment at that stage um, that uh, I was working on on the independent expenditure side in the sense that it felt like even though they weren't the incumbent, the Clinton campaign was running an incumbent-like campaign and resting on the laurels of the Obama campaign's administration and not evolving or adapting their strategies and tactics. And we all know what happened. And so it's really, really, really important that 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 people who are engaged around the country hear from the campaign, see the campaign everywhere that they are, are being asked to engage in numerous ways um, because they're ready. And and so it's it's you know it is the the low hanging fruit fruit right now. Now to be able to actually get this thing really buzzing and moving. And so it's everywhere at once because we know that the right is able to move a narrative much more quickly. They don't have as many people who will accept that narrative and engage with it. The biggest threat to um, Biden uh, in terms of losing the election this November is people who stay home people who stay at home, who don't engage, who aren't asked to engage, who aren't, their door is not beaten down virtually or physically um, numerous times. And um, they're cynical. They're cynical because they have seen uh, the current Republican House of Representatives not pass any bills um, and, and not even be able to elect a speaker for numerous things. Like these are things that when they do kind of drip down, um, it just reaffirms a lot of people's beliefs that politics are corrupt or, or not for them and that democracy doesn't work for them. And the campaign can actually reignite that relationship to democracy and elections and the threats at stake. And, and, and that's why they, they do. They need to get moving and on all cylinders. So I hope that that happens imminently. So, Simon, you tweeted and she just elaborated. <laughs> do you think that was a good elaboration on your tweet heard around the world? And what's your view of what has happened since you suggested that they needed to turn up the volume? Well, I think they, they have made it clear the campaign has turned on this week, right? I mean, the president is doing a, his first major campaign event, not a official event today. He's doing another one on Monday. Um, and just based on conversations I've had inside, I, I think everyone's ready to go. I mean, I think they're, they want to go. My gut is that things got delayed a little bit because of the war in Middle East and that some of the decision making about sort of letting things move ahead probably got delayed a little bit, but we're going now. And, and as Tara said, I think the single, I agreed with everything Tara just said. And I think one thing I just want to emphasize that is really important to understand is that every election cycle you reinvent, you have to reinvent your, how you do your politics based on the way that media is changing, the environment you're in, everything else. And it takes time. And, you know, what the, this campaign doesn't have is they don't have like a party committee. They would have special elections that they could test new things and try new things out. It's what we did in 2018 at the DCCC. In 2017, we had four really heavily contested special elections. 
where we tested out new digital tactics and so on that we and we lost all four, but we learned a lot from how that cycle was going to play out and how to talk about Trump and we tested stuff. And um or you, the campaign goes through a primary. A presidential campaign usually has a primary where they test things out and they learn and they evolve and they grow. They have neither. And it is a little bit, um, there needs to be, they are now engaging in the primary, this sort of not not a primary, but a primary that's happening. But this the, the, the risk involved in all of this is that the campaign doesn't have these normal tools for organic growth that happen in our politics. And so they have to be conscious about that and to um, build systems to allow them to be testing and growing and evolving and feedback loops and all this other stuff. But the second thing I'll say is that something Tara said, and it's something implicit and more explicit in what I've been writing and saying, is that the big change in this election is that this is a national election that is also happening in seven states. It's not an election happening in seven states with a bunch of donors. If Joe Biden is telling us that this is a fight to preserve our democracy in the most important election of our lifetime, then everyone's got a role to play in that. And the campaign's going to have to design a campaign that allows two, three, four million people to be involved in this fight for democracy and not just the people who happen to live in seven states. There's no model for that. That's never been done before. This has to be invented from scratch. And it is going to, and we're going to do our best and we're going to screw it up, right, as we go along. But to me, this is the most important thing. If Joe Biden wants to have a blowout victory, he needs to do it by relying on the passion and the love of country and the patriotism of two, three, four million people who he's calling on today to join him in this fight. Well, he can't then say, well, two million of you don't get to play because you live in California or Texas, only the people in the battleground states, right? So this is a huge design structural issue that the campaign is going to have to work through. And they need to get at it now because people are ready to go. So um, this is normally the point where we'll take a break and we'll say to everybody who's not a paid member, uh, thanks for listening and you should become a paid member so you could listen to the rest of the podcast. But I'm not going to actually do that here because this is too important a discussion. I don't want to have half of it or a third of it behind a paywall. Um, so I'll just encourage you, if you're not a member and you think what we're talking about is important, to go to the dsrnetwork.com and click on membership and help support what we're doing. Um, and uh, that'll support a lot more conversations like this. Uh, but let me just pick up the conversation. I've just heard very thoughtful um, descriptions of some strategic imperatives from Tara and and, and Simon. Tom, how, I... I do you concur? And how would you amplify or elaborate? Uh, yeah, I, I, I concur entirely. I think, you know, the, a, a point that Tara mentioned a minute ago that I want to come back to in terms of the importance of this, because I think it's been a big part of the discussion um, in the media around this race, especially over the last few weeks, is the question of the engagement of the Democratic base. Um and, and again, as I said, looking at 2022, when you look at where Democrats failed and, you know, one of those districts, we got another shot at uh, the Santos seat next month. Um, there's been a lot of talk there about, well, Long Island and, you know, a lot of the types of voters that have moved away from the Democrats. And sure, that exists. But when you look at the actual turnout, 
that allowed George Santos to win that seat was because Democrats stayed home. And I think that's a really important challenge. Um, and, and you're beginning to see that engagement from the, the president, his campaign. And we're just going to need to see a lot more of that. Um, the one thing that I do want to drill in on a little bit, given the opportunity here, is there's been so much attention paid to the polling uh, among young voters. And there have been a lot of polls showing some pretty absurd things. In fact, some showing that 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 Donald Trump was actually leading with with voters under the age of 30. Um, and that's led to some pretty negative press, I think, for the president. You know, there was there was a Jake Tapper interview with John Fetterman where reporting on an actual CNN poll, he asked John Fetterman if Democrats should replace President Biden on the ballot. That CNN poll actually showed President Biden winning by two points among likely voters, but that was ignored. And there was a lot of conversation about younger voters. And so I don't want to be Pollyannish about it. You know, Simon uses this term wandering. The parts of the Democratic coalition are wandering, which I think is perfect because certainly there are a lot of younger voters, especially who are wandering at the moment. But I also think in some ways the media has misinterpreted what we're actually seeing in these polls. And in fact, New York Times released this a few days ago. When you actually limit the polling to those who have voted in one of the last two elections, 2020 or 2022, the numbers look much closer to, quote, normal or where you would expect them to be where they were in 2020. And someone, and I wish I could give him credit, uh, and I can't remember, but it was uh, a pollster put together uh, this great resource of basically aggregating all of the polls, the public polls from the last month, so you can look at these subgroups. And what he demonstrated was you're actually seeing bigger uh, defections among some core Republican coalitions, including white college-educated voters, white college-educated men, and even white evangelical voters than you are seeing uh, younger voters defecting from President Biden. Um, but that has been absent from the public narrative so far. But, you know, back to your question. Yeah, I, I think th they're doing the right thing. They just need to do more of it. And I do think that engagement, especially with younger voters and voters of color, is going to be so incredibly important. And and I think we'll be seeing a lot more of that engagement investment uh, coming soon. I was interested, Tara, in what you said about the changing environment, uh, how, uh, you know, the people's patterns of consumption of information and the growth of diff diff different digital platforms um, was likely to uh, impact this. And I know that you have uh, studied it. And as you have, and as you say, well, we need something different for 2024 than we had for 2022, how should it be different? Um, it's a great question. It's it, just to elaborate a little bit um, on how it is different right now. Um, uh, not that, I mean, we this group talks about it all the time, right? We have a love-hate relationship with polling. Um, the polling doesn't always tell us what we need to know. We have to be skeptical of it. We have to take it with a grain of salt and think about just signaling. But also now, um, truly, the media narrative based on polling or not also um, is not representative of what's happening or how people are feeling across the country. And it's very, very increasingly difficult to understand that because people are consuming information in so many more 
niche spaces and uh, in, in different ways than ever before. Reaching them is much more challenging. Um, and campaigns and, and advocacy organizations have always been a bit slower to adapt to that. They've gotten better. Um, but you really do need to rely on so many more different types of messengers and distribution channels in order to get a message out to begin with, never mind to understand what messages are reaching people today um, and, and really penetrating among different audiences. And so it's just incredibly challenging. It's challenging to read the tea leaves um, and understand what people are, are seeing and hearing and understanding the media is spending an enormous amount of time trying to understand that. And and going down different rabbit holes about where you know certain niche narratives are taking off among communities or why different voters are being peeled off. We have less um, uh, regulation um, across all of the platforms in terms of misinformation and disinformation. That has been a huge undertold story, especially related to the Israel-Gaza um, conflict, because there are so many more foreign influences and bad actors that are driving wedge narratives and division um, on the left in particular in ways to be able to hurt Democrats. And we can't measure this stuff. It's very scary. I don't want to be like just doomsday about it, but it's just challenging. We have to actually ride on a lot of hope and a lot of aggressive hard work um, and because because we don't really know. So even if, you know, um, when everybody gets in formation because Trump has actually declared the nominee that we all know is going to happen and some people are still holding out hope and Biden is, is really, really turning up the campaign everywhere so people stop asking if he's the right person to be the Democratic nominee, that will stop when the campaign is turned on and the stakes are clear and the contrast is clear. Um, that, I, th I think, will help us a lot in terms of being able um, to, to get folks engaged on the actual stakes and what we have in front of us. Um, but it is, it's very, very, very difficult and challenging. And so there needs to just be a lot more investment in very diverse, different strategies and tactics. Um, we can't rely just on the campaign. Um, I ran one of the largest super PACs in 2020 that no longer exists because I started Courier and scaled it. And so uh, the, the independent expenditure space that played a massive role carrying the campaign against Trump until Biden was elected, which many uh, got the nomination, which many folks forget. The Biden campaign was actually a very short run um, in the end uh, once he got the nomination. And so there was an enormous amount of work that, that hasn't been done this time around by the independent expenditure ecosystem that was done in the lead up to 2020. So we're just in an entirely different election year and environment. Um, so anything anyone says on cable news or otherwise that says that they understand where this is going one way or the other, um, they really, really don't. And it's just going to come down to the work. We just have to do the work. It's, it's, it, and the work starts now. It's like, there's no waiting at this stage. So that's, you know, it, it, it touches upon something that's a little worrisome to me, Simon. And I don't understand this stuff in the way that you do. You know, I see all these acronyms. There's a D, Triple C, and there's a Democratic Senate campaign. Speaking of my old super PAC. <laughs> and, the, and, and then there's all these different, you know, super PACs, and there's the DNC, and then there's a campaign, and, and so on and so forth. And, you know, in, in one's dream, these are all powerful groups full of the smartest minds who are well-financed, who work together and meet once a week, and they're terribly well-coordinated. And all the campaigns that go out across America amplify the good messages and quickly counteract the bad messages that, that happen. But I, just even judging from the small wry smile that's crossing your face right now, 
you know, I, I, I doubt that that's actually what's happening. What's your sense? What's your assessment of the Democratic campaign infrastructure right now? So a lot of what I've been doing at Hopium over the last year has been to talk about this idea of us needing to become information warriors for our democracy. With this, it, It's sort of the equivalent of a victory garden in World War II, where we take greater responsibility for what Tara and Tom have been talking about here, what we've all been talking about, which is how do we tell our story. And to stop being so reliant on Joe Biden and the DNC and the campaign and the Democratic Party and recognizing that all of us have a role to play in the day-to-day information war that it plays out. And I think this consciousness that we're in an information war, that there is this combative information environment, and that each of us, if we can reach 10 people a day, I mean, if a million people can reach 10 people a day, that's 10 million people. That's three times as many people as Tucker Carlson reached on an, an average night when he was in his heyday. I think our collective family has so much more power and agency to tell our story than we understand. And I really do think that the model that we to be successful now is that we have to really truly burn the bridges to the broadcast age of political organizing and, and political um, the way that you organize a campaign around top-down broadcast. And you know, when you ran an ad in the old days, David, right, we describe viewers as couch potatoes. Their job was to sit on a couch and to consume the information. In the digital age, we're all actors in the system. There are no couch potatoes. We all can network, we're all networked and amplified. And I think our amplification capacity as a family is immense. And it's part of what I was getting at earlier about how do you build a campaign that has two, three, four million people every day connecting to the narrative and story being told and spreading it through their networks. I think this is how we're going to win. I mean, I, I, I'm, you know, I think as I explained to somebody in the campaign this week, Joe Biden bought television ads this week in the seven states, and they're going to run those ads. More people are going to see those ads online than they're going to see them on television. And, you know, what ad buying now is just a one mechanism of taking a narrative and story and moving it through, you know, our digital ecosystem. And, you know, we, this is a different way than we've run campaigns. This is a different, you know, it's bottom up rather than top down. It's, uh, you know, and I think this is where part of what I just want to say to your viewer, your listeners, is that, you know, saddle up. I mean, all of you not just give money and make your phone calls and text and do whatever you're going to do, but start becoming conscious of how you engage your community, your networks in the daily discourse. And, and as Tara said earlier, we, you know, two thirds of our communication has to be telling our story and one third has to be, in my view, denigrating them in terms of the balance, because I do think we have to put more positive, you know, stories into the, into our discourse. But long story short, I went on too long there. I think the our greatest superpower right now is the is the democratic base that's ready to go and go fight and we've got to give them something to do turn it on let them go and I think if we do that we're going to have a really good year. I think if we can't figure out how to tap into that energy and that patriotism that love of country and that sense that the people are willing to go fight for our freedom and democracy which is what the democratic party's been about since the 1940s then we're not going to have the year that we all want to have. And so and But I end with this. I think this is all doable stuff, right? What they have to do 
which is to dress up Donald Trump and make him look like a serious presidential candidate again. That's hard. The stuff we have to do, I think, is within our power to do. What they have to do, I think, is hard or even impossible. And it's why I think I'm so optimistic about 2024. Um, yeah, I think that's a, a really important point. I would add something else. If you're looking for a million people, you know, um, uh, you know, there are, what, 80 million, 70, 80 million votes on both sides. So it's uh, just a little over 1% of all voters. It's, it's less than a third percent of all Americans. Um, to go out and do it. And the question is, you know, to really do the heavy lifting. And if you're trying to get a million people to do it, one of the things you have to look for is the relationships those people have to the media that they use, the digital platforms that they use, because some people are more passive than other people. And, you know, we're very lucky here. You know, we just did a reader or audience survey here at, at, at DSR Network. And 50% of the people who listen to the DSR network, and we have about a million downloads a month, are have been doing it for more than six years. They've been they've been listening to this from the very beginning. And the vast majority of them listen to multiple podcasts a week, and they listen to the entirety of the podcast, which is 45 minutes. So they have a deep relationship with the people. And one of the things that I think distinguishes new media from other media whether you're using a social media platform that is followed primarily by your friends or you're podcasting and you have this kind of quasi-personal uh, relationship with the people you're listening to, because that's why people listen to podcasts, is they feel that the people they're listening to are kind of their friends, is that um, uh, there are there, there are people who are um, you know, more engaged, who are more likely to have more impact. And we have to be uh, strategic in how we identify them and what platforms get us to those people better. Because the earlier we do that, the more likely we are to move down this road. Uh, Tom, I, I'd like to go to each of you for just a, a final minute here or two. But Tom, is that enough? Is 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 the prescription offered here? Um, the 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 winning uh, prescription is there something missing? I sure hope it's enough. You know, when when Simon was saying he's optimistic a minute ago, I was thinking, you know, would I categorize myself as optimistic? I guess if there was a word for halfway between optimistic and terrified, I guess that's where I would be at this moment. <laughs> And I'm probably mistaken. <laughs> I was at dinner with months. some people last night, and that is exactly what they said. They said, <laughs> I'm optimistic and I'm full of anxiety. Was, that was, yeah. that was, can be very useful, though, as long as it isn't paralysis, right? Like channel. Exactly. I, I do feel like it's the sweet spot at this moment. It, 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 it keeps us moving forward, but we're realistic about the stakes. I, I will say, yeah, it, it, is it enough? I believe it will be, you know, to the point and, and, and to the points that, that Tara and Simon just made, because I think there's this great sort of meeting point between those two points. The media landscape has never been more fragmented than it is right now. You know, the days of being able to displace a, a evening news adjacent spot and have everyone see it have been gone for a long time. And every day the media landscape becomes more fragmented. And that makes things more challenging, but it also gives us more opportunities to reach people, but it's not as simple, obviously, as just, you know, placing an ad on TikTok, right? I mean, you could do that, but 
I think to what Simon is saying, these relationships and what David, you were just saying, the relationships that you've been able to form within this network, that's what we need to leverage. Uh, There's no more trusted or effective or persuasive form of communication than one that comes from someone that you know and trust. And that isn't just your family or your neighbors. It might be someone that you follow on TikTok or Twitter or a podcast that you listen to. And so I think the extent to which we can leverage those networks more effectively, yes, I, I, I believe it will be enough, but but gosh, I'm, I'm going to be optimistic slash terrified uh, right through the end of it. Well, so long as you're not terrified, you know, into paralysis, that's not a, that's not a good thing, right? If you're terrorized into action, it's a, it's a good thing. One, one minute each from Tara and Simon, uh, it's January 5th. Give the, you know, our listeners something they should do in January to make a difference in November. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are two. So I, I have this phrase I'm starting to use now, which is do more, worry less, right, is the the way that we have to approach <laughs> our, our days because uh, there is so much. Is that your New Year's resolution <laughs> also? I mean, I, Listen, a couple things. One is give to the Biden campaign and start getting connected to what they're doing, whether it's 25 bucks, 10 bucks, just jump in, get in there, get on the email list, get ready as they start to ramp up. Second is there's a an HD 30, there's a critical special election in Florida in on the 16th of January. Florida is a state we have to start winning again in. We've got a real opportunity for a pickup there with a great candidate. Uh, HD 35, Tom Keene, this uh, early voting starts tomorrow, Saturday. Lots of ways you can just type in Tom Keene, go to his site. There's ways you can make phone calls and text and give money. And then as Tom mentioned earlier, New York 3, there's a special election, the Santos seat, February 13th. The early voting is going to start there soon. That's also a real pickup opportunity for us. And so there are things you can do. But finally, getting back to the thing we discussed earlier, is keep getting smarter. Do your homework. Learn how to make your case for Joe Biden and the Democrats. To me, there is no right way to, or wrong way to make the case. There's the way that you feel comfortable and, and your passion and your knowledge and your intensity will come through. It's why I'm not a big fan of talking points anymore. I think talking points, people can feel the inauthenticity of when people are parroting words that were not written by them. So find a piece of Joe Biden's story that really resonates with you, whether it's choice or whether it's jobs or whether it's work overseas, that becomes the gateway for you and your community to understand how successful he's been and stay stay there and, and keep pushing it through our networks. I think this is the way we have to unlearn in some of the ways that we've been taught how to do all this, which is that passion, intensity, you know, really, and, 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 and a sense of authenticity is going to be really critical in these kinds of human-to-human, person-to-person uh, communications. And it leaves me very optimistic, as I said earlier, because we've got so much, you know, Biden's been a good president. We've got a strong story to tell. Let's get going and tell it together. Okay, you deferred to Simon there, Thomas. <laughs> gives you the last word. I want to I wanna address mine specifically to the people, the hand wringers who are frustrated or not excited about Joe Biden or the skeptics who are the ones that are at most risk of staying home um, because this, this election is so much bigger than Joe Biden. 
um, this election is about our democracy. It's about our rights and freedoms. Um, it's about the ability for uh, me as a woman to have bodily autonomy in this country. It's about LGBTQ um, plus individuals being able to have rights. Uh, it's about um, our ability to maintain a country that uh, allows immigrants and refugees um, coming from countries um, riddled with violence and authoritarianism to come here and build lives for themselves and their families. All of these things are actually at stake. And whether or not you like Joe Biden, who has been the most phenomenal effective president in my lifetime, um, it does not matter. And so when when you're thinking about that or you're not feeling great about this, um, I would really, really urge those people to think about what we lose and what they are going to regret not having done if Donald Trump is reelected president, because this country will never be the same again if that happens. Truly will never be the same again. And also, I happen to believe that the winning story that needs to be told in all of these nine bajillion places we've talked about now in this media ecosystem is a very, very clear and simple one. It is about what will happen if Donald Trump is elected and why that is the reason to vote not wring your hands, not vote for a third-party candidate, but to check the box for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris in this election because that is who we have. They are exceptional leaders, and it is warding off the absolute worst that we could ever see happen to this country, certainly in my lifetime. And so um, that is what, even if folks don't have social media, that is what they need to be talking about with their friends and neighbors because it really is about getting people off of the sidelines, off of the couch, off of their skepticism um, and, and into the game with us, whether or not they're excited about the fact that this is not a change election, quote unquote, in terms of the candidates. Well, that's all great advice. Uh, some of you may hear in the background that you've already motivated my dog uh, to get out and, and vote. And he's, you know, 103 pounds of, um, blue dog Democrat, uh, uh, even though he's originally from Texas. Um, but, uh, uh, I, I hope that it has the same effect on our listeners and I hope that we can get you back, you know, on a regular basis between now and November and talk about what we're doing. There's a lot of other issues here. Simon tangentially mentioned the house, uh, where Democrats have a good chance of reclaiming the majority. The Senate is uh, pretty dodgy. Uh, there are going to be some issues that are going to come up along the way. The House majority of the Republicans is pretty slim and getting slimmer, uh, and that, that creates certain kinds of political opportunities for us along the way, as we've talked to Norm Ornstein with. Um, and uh, uh, in each and every month, there's going to be something to do uh, for this sort of army of activists that uh, Simon is trying to recruit and we're trying to help him with. Uh, so uh, hopefully you'll, uh, you'll uh, join us for those conversations for now. Thank you, Tara. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Simon. And thank you, everybody, for listening.